Well, tis the season, uh, those of you who are moms, tis the season of antibiotics, amen? <laughs> oh, my. I told my doctor um, last month, I said, I- I've seen more of you and other doctors in the last year than I think, think I've seen in, of doctors my entire life. And he goes, well, you aren't as young as you used to be. I said, thank you for sharing that. I, I came across this uh, little brief history of of medicine uh, the other week. I'll take a look here, going back in time and how would people handle earaches in the past? So uh, if, uh, for example, Sarah would come to Abraham and says, Isaac has an earache, um, Abraham would say to Isaac, here, eat this root, right? That's how you'd handle medicine 4,000 years ago. Jump ahead um, 3,000 years, now the response would be, this, that root is heathen, say this prayer. And then we jump ahead to 1850, and someone would say, well, that prayer is superstition, drink this potion. And then we get to 1940, and somebody would say, that potion is snake oil, swallow this pill. And then we get to the year when my wife and I were raising children in 1985, and uh, someone would say, well, that pill is ineffective, take this antibiotic. And to show you that the, that the more things change, the more they stay the same, you get to 2000, That antibiotic is artificial here, eat this root. (laughs) Talking about the antibiotic of giving today, and antibiotics are, uh, they fight um, um, bacterial infections. And we know there's some problems with the antibiotics. Uh, Alexander Fleming, who uh, discovered penicillin, 90 years ago when he received the Nobel uh, Award for that in 1945, warned against the possible day coming when we would develop resistance to antibiotics. And so uh, their future is somewhat in, uh, uncertain as you know we've taken a lot of them and we've developed these resistances to them, but still a good thing. And uh, how many of you moms would want to be without amoxicillin or something like that? And so uh, antibiotic fights against an infection and actually in some cases can also be an inoculation against a future uh, infection. And we've been talking these last number of weeks about greed and whether or not, try to assess in the early weeks whether or not we have some pockets of greed in us. And now the last couple of weeks talking about what might we do about that if we have discovered some of that. And uh, we want to talk more about that today. What do we do about that if we discover that that's there? Or if we simply want to guard against um, greed developing in in our lives. So we're going to look at a couple of uh, key passages today. First of all, starting in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. And chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians are the most important passages in all the New Testament, in my opinion, uh, regarding giving and the spirit that drives um, generous giving. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about giving in a general sense, not just giving to the local church, um, giving to other organizations, uh, Christian organizations, even good work organizations that might not be Christians. We're going to talk about giving, uh, just giving money away to people in need. And so when I talk about generous giving or sacrificial giving, just know that I have a pretty big category uh, in my mind. But the passage that we're about to read Uh, really speaks about helping other Christians in need. And so let me pray for us, and then we're going to read a few verses out of that. Father, um, we get the feeling from reading the Bible that you really are um, 
concerned about greed and its both potential and existential grip on our lives. And probably in the American culture, that's doubly true because the opportunity for greed is so much um, more persistent, more possible. Um, there are more people in America who can buy a new card probably than any other country in the world. Uh, we probably have more millionaires in America than any other country in the world. And so we're vulnerable. And probably to some degree uh, relatively unaware if there is a greed problem in our lives. Because again, we look at other people who love Jesus like we do, who have so much more than we do, uh, who indulge so much more, um, buy so many more things than we do, and we feel like whatever we buy, uh, whatever we have is, is not over the top. And I'm absolutely convinced that you, you don't have an across-the-board plan for everybody except to be generous, which means that um, even though somebody else might have a lot more than we do, um, that you're not really interested in telling us what that person should be doing. You're much more interested in telling us what we should be doing. And so I pray for that kind of vulnerability this morning in our spirits that the, the Spirit of God might speak to us, that we'd have open hearts, not resistant hearts, um, that we would be uh, able to be nudged, pressed, prodded, and encouraged and to be reminded of how you have used the generosity of other people in our lives down through the years and what a blessing that's been and how, what a testament that's been to work of grace in somebody else's life that we might want to be part of that um, as well. The enemy hates you, he hates us, and he for sure hates us getting off the greed bandwagon. Um, Satan dearly loves when we make um, idols out of our wealth and our possessions. So shut him up this morning. Uh, bind him that he would not be able to influence us in any way. And instead, let the Holy Spirit run freely. Pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Verse 6 is going to be where we start. Con background here is that the Christians in Jerusalem, actually all of Judea, were in dire straits. There had been a famine in the land. That had compounded normal societal problems like overpopulation, um, overtaxation, food shortages already prior to the famine. And so as Paul would go around and uh, would plant churches or revisit churches that he already planted, he would ask them to donate money to, for the Christians back in Judea, especially in Jerusalem. And, and this was a process that took, really, it took place over numerous years. And then either Paul would go back or he would send somebody like Titus back uh, to pick up the offering that they had collected and take it to the people in need in, in Jerusalem. And it was really kind of a, a especially cool thing because many of these other churches were... Um, full of Gentile converts, whereas the Jerusalem church was uh, full of Jewish converts. And so Paul would try to encourage them, look, these are your spiritual forebearers. They're your spiritual ancestors in some way, and they were in Christ before you were. Um, you've been the be beneficiary of their faith, and now it's time for you to kind of return the favor to them. 
And apparently what had happened in Corinth, and Corinth was especially Gentile church, um, mostly um, people from very pagan backgrounds. They didn't have any moral background really like the, the Jewish converts did who would have had the law and God's commands and so forth. Um, that's why we see things like a, a man living with a sexual relationship with his stepmother there and nobody apparently thinking anything about it. And so Paul writes them, he says, look, you guys last year, let's just say for argument, they committed $10,000 to this fund. And let's say they raised 6,000 of it and, and uh, they maybe even passed that amount along. But somewhere along the way, their enthusiasm petered out and the money's not coming in, the remaining 4,000's not coming in. Paul writes them in part to chide them about where they're at. That's where we pick this story up. Verse 6. And so we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were the first who wanted to give and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. And we'll stop there. That last passage is a reference from, uh, to back in Exodus when the Israelites were fleeing Egypt. They were out in the wilderness, had no water, no food, and God began supplying food by raining down manna from heaven, which the name means what is it? little wafers that would gather on the desert floor and people would go out every day and, and gather it up. And it's interesting, let's say you have one family that's got five kids who are you know, hard workers and they're going out and they're gathering this all up. You over here, you might have an 80-year-old widow who doesn't have any children and she's barely getting a few flakes for her, for her dinner. And God had told them, don't, don't uh, pick up more than you uh, more than you need for today. And yet some people did, only to find out the next day that it got rotten, it had spoiled overnight. And so the people who gathered a lot had just enough, and the people who gathered a little had just enough. And part of what God was teaching through that was that I am your supplier, you aren't. I am your provider, you aren't. You think you have everything taken care of. You, you think you have your nest egg here and you've got this provided. No, no, no. I'm the one who provides for you. Now, the main thing I want you to think about in this passage, and we have one of the key passages we're going to look at today, is that grace, God's grace leads to our gratitude, which leads to our generosity. 
that God's grace should lead to a spirit of gratitude in our hearts, which should lead to generosity. In other words, gratitude is my heart's response to God's grace in my life. But then generosity is my life's response to God's grace in my life. Now let's just review. Grace means given, being given a wonderful gift that I don't deserve. I, it's not owed me. Um, I, I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's just somebody cared enough about me, loved me enough to give me something. Just, I just want to bless you. About a year and a half ago, there was a, a single mom in North Las Vegas. She had three kids. And uh, she had an appointment at the, at the hospital to get some medical tests run. It was going to take about a day and a half. And, and she didn't have anybody. She didn't have family, um, have, really have friends in the area she'd been able to develop. She was just trying to keep her head above water most of the time. And she had a daughter who was a friend with a neighbor girl. And uh, she thought, I, maybe I can ask her mother to help. And so she went next door. She said, Tish, I know we don't know each other well, but she said, I'm going to the hospital for these tests. Would you mind keeping my kids for about a day and a half? She said, of course not. Glad to. So Audrey went to the hospital, came back with the bad news that she has esophageal and stomach cancer. And that she has about a year to live. And in the days ahead, uh, she made contact with Tish again. And she said, look, I I can't believe I'm going to ask you this, but I I have no family. I have nowhere else to turn. Would you be willing to take care of my kids once I pass away? Now, she didn't know that Tish had grown up in orphanages and a variety of foster care homes, none of which were really that nice. And I don't know about you, but I put myself in the story, and I'm thinking when somebody comes to me, I didn't tell you, did I, that Tish has five kids of her own? Somebody comes to me and says, would you take three on three kids and raise them as your own? And I don't know you. I, I, I don't really have any connection with you. My response would probably be, I'll pray about that. And I'll get back to you. Not Tish. She said, absolutely. And the only thing neither of them knew was that Audrey didn't have a year to live. She had about two and a half weeks. And all of a sudden, a family of seven became a family of ten. I just think about that from Audrey's point of view. Can you imagine knowing your life is going to come to an end before too long, but that you have somebody who's already committed? I'm going to, don't you worry about it. I'm going to take care of your kids. They're not going to end up in a foster care system. They're not going to end up in an orphanage. I've got them. Now, Tish, what related to her, Audrey had never done something for her that Tish felt she needed to pay back. It was simply a, a gift that she gave to somebody that really was undeserving, but it was a gift. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 9 in this text, he's speaking about Jesus. He said, though, though he was rich... Yet he became poor for your sakes so that you might become rich. And he wasn't talking about wealth. I'm reading a book right now by somebody that tries to argue that Jesus was actually from a wealthy home, that he was a rabbi and rabbis uh, were drawn from wealthy homes. To be trained to be a rabbi, you had to have kind of an upper crust home and and, uh, that Jesus voluntarily gave up all his earthly wealth so that he could be an itinerant preacher and I'm like yeah I don't think so but he was the prince of heaven who left all of that behind 
descended here to us, taking on the poverty of our humanity so that he could go to the cross and be a bloody sacrifice for a bum like me. Yet for your sakes, he became poor. And Paul links that good news of the gospel with his call on their lives to be generous. Grace leads us to gratitude, which leads us to generosity. Now, I want to do an aside before we move on in this message, especially for those of you who might be relatively new to Keystone and not really sure what we think, believe, or teach about uh, charitable giving. Uh, Some people, uh, part of that's because many different churches have many different ideas about giving, and we probably don't agree with everybody that's uh, reflected here. So let me just tell you a little bit what it looks like. Some people typically say tithing. Somebody who follows Jesus should give a tithe of their income to the Lord's work. The word tithe means a tenth, and that comes from the Old Testament, where all the Israelite families were required to set aside a tithe, a tenth, of their income, and then that money went to the tabernacle and it paid for the salaries of the priests and Levites, as well as any maintenance or upkeep on the tabernacle and, of course, later the temple. However, if we look to the Old Testament tithing system as our model or a requirement, 10% isn't going to get it done. Because there, would be, there was a second tithe. Now, I don't really count this tithe because it was money set apart for party supplies, basically. It was for food and drink for when you're going to celebrate feast day. And so you spend it on yourself. So in my opinion, that, does, that tithe doesn't really count. But there was a third tithe. And that tithe you paid every third year. And that was for the poor among the nation of Israel. So you average that out. So it was about 13% of your annual income you're putting aside for the, for the Lord's work. But that wasn't the end of it. They also gave free will offering and thank offering. So if they saw a blessing in their life that God gave them, then they would give an extra gift as a way of saying thank you to God. And so really, if we're going to look at the Old Testament tithe as the model, uh, tenth isn't going to get it done. Now what's interesting is we get to the New Testament. How many times do you think tithing is mentioned in the New Testament? Anyone, anybody want to take a guess? How many of you think um, 10 times or more? Put, put up your hand, 10 times or more. All right, five to 10 times, put up your hand. All right, one to five times, put up your hand. Yeah, more. It's mentioned once. It's mentioned twice in two different gospels, but it's the same story, so it's really only mentioned once. And Jesus is mentioning not to tell the people, um, make sure you pay your tithe, but to say, you're so worried about the precision in your tithing, but you're not worried about the rest of the obedience to the law, namely showing mercy to people and loving people. And there's no instruction after that from Acts on about giving the tithe. Now that's instructive for us on this topic when we think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. And Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill the law. In other words, there are things about the law that are going to come to an end. Namely, the sacrificial system, the ritual law. So when Jesus dies 
and is buried and then raised to life again, all the sacrifices that the Israelite families used to, to make, the animal sacrifices, the, I mean, the, the Israelites were up to their kneecaps in blood with all of the animal sacrifices they had to make on behalf of their sins. And the book of Hebrews says something that's wonderful to Jews, probably not as wonderful to Gentiles, but Jews got it. That Christ was sacrificed once for all. End. It's over. For the sins of the world. And so we can look at that, we can look at that statement by Jesus and understand that there are a variety of things that are going to come to an end that are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I think that one of the things that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ is that we're no longer under a stipulated law of you pay exactly this. In fact, when Paul talks in these two chapters in 2 Corinthians, the, the, the standard is no percentage of income. The standard of giving is your spirit in giving. What does it say? Those of you who know, what's it say in chapter 9? How, do, how should we give? Give cheerfully. I know it was a cheesy grin, but give cheerfully. In fact, he says here, uh, I think it was in verse 8. No, no, it wasn't verse 8. I'll find it. There it is, verse 11. He talks about giving uh, eagerly. You, you, you were originally committed to giving this gift with eagerness, and you should do that now as well. There, there should be a desire and passion in your heart to give. And I've, I've said this before. I don't... None of my leaders have complained yet, but I, I'm going to tell you, if you come to on a Sunday morning, you've brought a check along with you to drop in the offering bag, but you're like Ebenezer Scrooge when the bag goes down your row and you pull out that check and you're like, oh, I don't want to really give it, but you put it in there and the bag moves on and you go, oh, you kind of look after it wistfully. This is from God. Just keep your money. God doesn't need it. He really doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can kill a couple if he needs a few bucks. Jesus needed some money to pay his temple tax. And he didn't write out a check. He sent one of the disciples down to go fishing. And he said, the, you're going to pull out a fish and it's going to have gold coins in its mouth. I mean, if, if God can do those kinds of things, he can provide for the needs of the church, the needs of the missionaries, the needs of ministry organizations and so forth. So if you can't part with it willingly, just keep it. Just keep it. So maybe that's helpful for you in terms of where we stand. I um, I really believe that somebody can give 5% of their income and be completely in God's will. And I believe that somebody can give 25% of their income to the Lord, to other people, to ministries, and be out of the will of God because God wants 60% of their income. And so it's really not my business, it's not your business to talk to other believers and say, I, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do this. It is our business to get alone with God and say, would you guide me and lead me and tell me what you want me to do with your money? And we're going to talk more specifically about this at the end of the message. So every year, at the end of the year, uh, I think and start praying about, God, how much of my next year's income do you want? me to give back to you and to others to how much 
of my money, do you, my, your money, do you want me to give away, part with? We'll talk more about that in detail. All right, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And talk more specifically about how greed might um, mitigate against, how it can um, be this antibiotic against greed, either to cure it, uh, pockets that are already there in our lives, or to guard me against it showing up in, in the future. 1 Timothy 6, beginning verse 17, teach those who are rich in the world, stop right there. Now, based on the things that we've been saying the last number of weeks, how many of you are by now convinced that we are rich? I still have some work to do. God used to have some work to do with us. Now, it's true. There are people around us here who have a lot more than we do and other people who have a lot less than we do. But really, in the eyes of the world, the vast majority of the world, we are very, very well off. And that means God's speaking to us. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so what? So what? Unreliable. So unreliable. Like, no, I have, I have my money in, in really solid investments. I've got my money in a, in a bank that's being guarded by the FDIC or whoever. I've, I've got, you know, I've got money in real estate, you know, and that doesn't lose its value. No, in the big scheme of things, this is not reliable is what God's trying to say. Rather, our trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. In other words, he's the FDIC. He's the security in our investments. He's the one who makes sure wealth comes about, wealth exists, and wealth is retained. I mean, you, you can find texts on this throughout the scripture starting in the very early parts of the Old Testament that says, God says, I am the one who provides. I am Jehovah Jireh. I'm the one who provides what you have, all that you have, all that you need, all that you aspire to. God's the provider. Now it goes on. Tell them, these rich people, to use their money to do what? To do good. Tell them to use their money, say it with me, to do good. They should be rich in good works, generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, now this is, this is I think, where the, uh, Paul's making the argument about, about how generosity can be a hedge against greed. Doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation, in other words, in heaven, for the future so that they may experience true life, experience true life in the here and now. We're, we're focused, remember we talked about last week, be setting our minds on things above, not on things below, and storing up treasures in heaven, not treasures on the earth. There's a phrase that's been coined to describe our times, our society, called called um, lifestyle creep. Now that's not the guy who hangs out in your neighborhood. It's to describe what happens as our lifestyle changes uh, because we, get more mon- we have more money. It might be because we got an increase in salary or it might be because um, some of our past costs 
uh, have come to an end and we have more discretionary income. We have more money at our disposal. So, for example, uh, you get a $200 raise, you come home and you share that with your husband or wife and you say, I'm going to get $200 more a month than I've, I've, I've had. And uh, your spouse goes, whoa, that's awesome. Let's, tonight, let's, uh, let's go out to what? We're going to celebrate, right? We're going to go out to dinner. That's the beginning of lifestyle creep. Because you now went out to dinner on a night that you weren't going to go out to dinner to celebrate a raise that you didn't have last month. The prospect is that you're going to increase your lifestyle up to that increased salary. Because maybe you've been putting off uh, uh, buying an, another car because you just couldn't quite swing the car payment, but now you can. So you have a dinner out, now you're going to get another car. Lifestyle creep. That happens at the other end of life as well. Or, or it could be a variety of times in life. Maybe you pay that car off and all of a sudden you have $200, $300, $400 more a month to play with. Those of us who are empty nesters, we get a lot of money to play with after the kids uh, leave home, right? Uh, if you, I, I didn't pay for my kids' college, so I didn't experience this. But some of you, you're helping pay for college. Uh, your last child graduates from college. And praise God, they get a job. And praise God, even more, they move out. They get a roomie and they move out. And now they have a, a, a place of their own. And all of a sudden, you don't have college costs anymore, and there's maybe some other things that you were uh, spotting them for, whether it's food or maybe helping pay some insurance costs along the way. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, sweetheart, we hit the jackpot. All, all kinds of money that we can put that addition on the house now. Um, uh, we, can, uh, we can take that trip to Tahiti we've been hoping to take all along lifestyle creep. Now, the, the question that God has in the middle of that, as our income increases or our expenses decrease, is what, what about me? What, what, about, what about me, God's saying? Andy Stanley, in his book, uh, Enemies of the Heart, writes, Generous giving will break the grip of greed in your life. So whether or not you think you have extra, give and give generously. You've got to give to the point that it forces you to adjust your lifestyle. Just let that sink in for a minute. Do you give now to the degree that it has, a, has forced some um, compromises in your lifestyle? Uh, it's just tremendously convicting to me. Whether or not you think you have extra, give and give generously. You've got to give to the point that it forces you to adjust your lifestyle. If you're not willing to give to the point that it impacts your lifestyle, then according to Jesus, you're greedy. If you're consuming to the point of having little or nothing left to give, and again, uh, we're not just talking about giving to the church. We're talking about generous giving to, to the, the Lord, to his ministry, but to other people's needs. If you're consuming to the point of having little or nothing left to give, you're greedy. If you're consuming and saving to the point that there's little or nothing to give, you're greedy. Because greed is not a feeling. It's a refusal to act. 
Greed is not a feeling. It's a refusal to act. Listen, greed enables me to primarily invest in me. Generosity invests in God and the things that are on God's heart. And I would encourage us, this is, this is, this is the most important thing I want us to, to leave here with this morning, that maybe God wants me to give more than I think I can afford to give. Maybe God wants me to give more than I think I can afford to give. Now, let me just put a caveat on that statement because I've met people in, in my ministry who just, they can become um, ignited by some statement like that in a moment and they're like, I, I want to give everything away. I'm like, well, you have a wife and a children. Yeah, but I'm going to give everything away. Well, who's going to take care of them then? I don't know. God will work it out somehow. somehow. Um, I, that, that's, that's not faith. That's folly. That's foolishness. Uh, what I have found where God pushes me is usually, uh, Keith, um, I, want, I want another 3% out of you a year. Or I want you to write a check uh, for 100, you know, a couple hundred dollars right now for this person. And it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not throwing me um, over the wall, but it's stretching me. And that over time, God stretches that band further and further and further. And so how far does he want to stretch it with you? Not next year, not five years from now, but how much right now, today, or in 2018, does he want to stretch it with you? Let me give you a five-fold plan, and I stole some of the language from J.D. Greer at Summit Church down in North Carolina. I'm going to talk about plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E. I'll just warn you, plan E may be the hardest piece of this. All right, plan A is the local church. What are you giving to the local church? What's God want you to give to the local church? Now, I think based on the model of the Old Testament where the first, first tenth, the first fruits went to the care of the tabernacle and the temple and uh, those responsibilities there, I think that's where a believer's first responsibility lies. And so for Betty and I, when we plan for our next year's uh, giving, it's going to be uh, at least 10% is going to go to, uh, of the gross, is going to go to Keystone Church. That's where we start. That's plan A. I think Galatians 6.6 6 is an underpinning for that. Uh, if, you're getting taught, if you're getting taught in a local church, that should be where um, your initial and first fruit money should go. By the way, if you're not getting taught in a local church, you better find one where you are getting taught. So that's plan A, local church. Plan B, missionaries and other Christian ministries. So Betty and I support some missionaries. Um, apart from what we give Keystone to support them, we support a couple missionaries that uh, our Keystone supported on our own. So we have relationships with them. And, you know, we keep encouraging you to do that, that you adopt one or two of the missionaries out there in the corridor. Or maybe you have someone in your family or a friend that's uh, on, on the mission field. You support them. It's great. Wonderful. Uh, we have a, a couple ministries that we support. Again, some that are um, Keystone supported, others that are not, that we every month write a, write a check to them. So that falls in this category. And, and the mission piece, let me just uh, do a little bit of a preview for next Sunday night's 
meeting uh, on Keystone Church and God's global mission. And I hope, I really hope you'll make a priority to come to that at seven o'clock. Um, I'm going to do a presentation. I kind of oversee the mission effort here at Keystone, but we'll also have Q&A time. Listen, we, the, the, the world is spinning at an exorbitant pace, right? It seems like it's almost out of control. Yet there is something that is on God's heart that is still not finished with. And that is to see that all the people groups of the world hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I understand that, you know, it's easy to be real myopic and and think, um, you know, Betty and I have have targeted three of our neighbors that we've been praying for and and doing little things here and there to try and open doors for, that there are plenty of us that have neighbors that need Jesus. I get that. And, And we should be involved and invested in those people's lives. But it's easy to get myopic and think that's the beginning and the end. And I can't tell you how many times Christians have said to me, oh, the Keith, there's, there's, when I talk about missions, they're like, there's so much work to be done here. I'm like, yeah, but Jesus didn't say go to Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem's finally all reached, move on to uh, Judea and then Samaria and, and eventually the ends of the earth. It's, all those four things are supposed to be taking place simultaneously. And so with 3.1 billion people in the world who are still unreached with the gospel of Christ, we have a lot of work to do yet. And I don't know about you, you know, my, my life is getting, I'm getting older and older and I'm, you know, I'm seeing the gates of glory a lot easier and with a lot more clarity than I did a decade ago. And I'm realizing a lot of the things that I, I was 20 years ago planning to take right up to the end of my life and have it being meaningful to me, it's not really all as meaningful as I thought. But seeing people come to know the Savior who never heard the gospel becoming more and more meaningful to me all the time. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, that something is going to happen and something needs to happen before the end can ever come. And that is that the gospel is going to make its way to all the people groups of the world. Not every individual is going to hear, but all the people groups, many of whom currently don't have somebody that speaks their language or lives near enough to them to share the good news with them. And so they're just boxed out of the gospel. And we need a whole new generation of pioneers who are going to find ways into some of the countries where they can't get a missionary visa, but they're going to go in as engineers or as journalists, as something else, and crack those hard gates with the gospel. And God's going to ask some of us to write the checks to send them. He may even ask some of us to be the ones who go and crack those gates. So anyway, that's my plan B, missionaries and ministries outside your local church that you're supporting. Plan C, people in need. Now, you can do this one or two, a couple of ways. Uh, Betty and I used to do it. We would budget so much money a year. This money's set aside just to give away. This is just giveaway money. Um, we find, hear about needs and try to prayerfully hear what God's saying and we give out money. We don't do that anymore. I don't budget certain money, but we... Um, partly because we're not as um, hard off, uh, bad off as we used to be. But now we just kind of, God, we're going to listen to your promptings. We want to hear the Holy Spirit guiding us, this need, that need. We're going to write a check, um, hand some cash off. Just what, what do you want us to do? That's plan C, people in need. 
Um, you might have a plan D. We don't, uh, but some people have good works organizations that are not Christian ministries that they give to, maybe cancer research, something like that. Uh, I tend to uh, often bump into philosophical tensions with those organizations, and I'm like, ah, I'd rather put my money in Christian organizations if they do something uh, especially that's similar. Plan E, wait for it. This is the one I warned you might be the hardest. I, I'm convinced this has incredible power for materialistic American Christians like me. Loan your stuff out. Loan your stuff out. What do you mean? You got tools? Mm. I'm happy to let my kids borrow my tools, but some stranger comes up and says, can I borrow your router? I'm like, what are you going to do with it? (laughs) And what I really mean is, what are you going to do to it? Loan your stuff out. And when it comes back all messed up, don't flip out on the person. Take it to Jesus because Jesus was in the process of detaching your love away from that thing and fixing it on Jesus again where it belongs. I I, I mean this. I think this is incredibly powerful to guard against greed because we love our stuff, don't we? We love our stuff. And as some of those songs we sang about the potential idolatry in, in, in the, our wealth, that shows up in our things. Loan your stuff out. Oh, and one last thing on that note. When they ask you, you might be at something pretty big that you're, they're borrowing. When they ask you, um, how much do you want for it, i.e. To, to, to rent it, your answer is always going to be, what? Nothing. 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 Why? Because if you're going to take some money for it, it's kind of like if it get, comes back trash, like, well, at least I got some bucks and I kind of, you know, I can buy a new one. With at least that helps me buy a new one. No, you want to strip away your fingers from the idolatry of that stuff. If you want to do it, make a clean break with it. It's like, I'm just going to bless you especially if it's a fellow believer, you're part of my family anyway, part of the family of faith, I'm going to let you use it and pray to God it doesn't come back like I think it's going to come back. Uh, I need to stop, but I, I do want to share a personal example. I made a walnut coffee table um, early days of when I was a woodworker, and I had developed some skills by this. It was my first really cool piece. did lay the work on it. I did leaded glass on it, some things I'd never tried before, and so proud of that, and I love black walnut wood. And I am, a, I am a woodworker to the core to this day. I love to see beautiful wood and, and woodwork craftsmanship. I brought this thing home, and this was before Betty and I had any children. And then we had children who didn't love walnut like I did. <laughs> And all, that, all they cared about was being able to hang on to something when they're learning to walk and playing with the, these little hard blue and red blocks, hard plastic. And they go, bam, and there's another dent. Bam, and there's another dent. And I used to just kind of flip out. What are you doing to my table? My table 
See the problem? It's at God's table. It's my table. And today, I treasure, I do, when I look at that table, we still have it. I treasure Travis's and Shallon's marks of distinction. Um, but loan your stuff out. We've got to pray. Father, thanks for all the things you've given us. Thanks for the wealth you've blessed us with, with the, the grace gifts you've poured out in our lives. It's really easy to come to think of all of that stuff as mine. And I, I, I know, I, I don't know what's been going on with a, a lot of other people in this sermon series. I just know what's been going on with me. And I know there's some conversations that Betty and I need to have. And there's some, some gifts that need to be made. And I pray whatever it takes, I, at least I mean this in theory, whatever it takes um, to, to dismantle pockets of greed in my life or to guard against them establishing a foothold in the future, that you would do it and that the lost people of the world would benefit, the people who are in dire straits like this woman whose husband left her with six kids and my friend who paid her mortgage for three years, that you would do the kind of work of grace in us that sees the gospel of grace as so impacting that we just disseminate our own grace all over the place as we share our money and our stuff for the glory of God and for the good of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?